give me the data, give me some processing power, and give me nifty software, and let me do my thing, please. Hello, and welcome to episode 27 of the Ford Love Data Podcast. I'm Robert Furr, and today I have a special episode for you where I am talking to Ronald Damhoff, the creator of the Data Quadrant. Ronald Damhoff is a data architect at the Dutch Central Bank and has a wealth of international consulting experience for more than 15 years in the field of information management. He's an information quality certified professional and a certified Data Vault Grandmaster, the highest certification level in Data Vault. He is also a certified Scrum Master member of the Boulder BI Brain Trust, and a blogger on the BI Network. Along with all of these activities, he's also a PhD student in information management. In this interview, we'll cover the fundamentals of the data quadrant, a sense-making framework in the complex world of data that enables a common frame of reference between managers, domain experts, and engineers. This model is used by many organizations to formulate data strategy and justify investments in the data domain. It's used as a strategic underpinning for a data architecture. It guides the rules of the game, and it separates the fundamental concerns in data. Furthermore, it explains how an organization can toggle the need to innovate with data and the need to deploy and use data at scale, repeatedly, safe, lawfully, with constant quality and robustness. We do our best to describe the quadrant in the interview, but it will probably be a big help to take a look at the quadrant in the show notes for this episode at fortheloveofdata.com slash e Ronald's contact information and more information about the Quadrant are also in the notes. Without any further ado, I bring you Ronald Damhoff and the Data Quadrant. All right, everyone. I am so happy to be here today with Ronald Damhoff. He's an uh, enterprise data architect uh, at the Dutch Central Bank, and we've got quite a uh, time zone difference between us, and we've been working for quite a while to get this uh, discussion together, so I'm really excited about it. Uh, excuse me if I seem a little bit uh, out of it conversation-wise, because it is 3 a.m. for me, but I'm excited about this. So, Ronald, thank you so much for joining me. Why don't you uh, tell me a little bit about your background and uh, what you've been working on recently? Sure. Thank you. It's great to be here. Um, I'm, as you said, at, currently I'm the Enterprise Data Architect for the Dutch Central Bank, so I'm located in the Netherlands. Um, my history uh, dates back from retail point-of-sale systems, um, mainly consultancy architecture, mainly data architecture, um, doing all kinds of uh, master classes, certification teachings, and also public speaking uh, uh, for the last six to seven years, especially on the topic of getting data into the boardroom as a normal conversation instead of a nerdy conversation. <laughs> um, so that, 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 that's very briefly uh, where I'm coming from. I um, Some people uh, also have a, a, how do you say it, a kind of a pet name for me saying I'm, a, I'm kind of a data fundamentalist um, and I'm keeping that image close to me. Um, I'm also a founding member in the Netherlands and in Germany and in Belgium as well of the full-scale data architecture community, which is going very, very, very rapidly and growing very hard at the moment of all kinds of just 
fellow colleagues in the data architecture world that really want to um, get this, 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 this field of expertise on a higher maturity level because it's, in our opinion, it's much too low. It's very much technical driven, which it shouldn't be. Um, and so we are organizing ourselves in some kind of body of knowledge. What is data architecture? How should it work? How do we separate the concerns? Um, and that's going very, very smoothly as well. Yeah. So that's basically very short um, who I am. That's great. I, I'm, it's really refreshing to hear you refer to uh, kind of the the gap between the technical perception and sort of the business context. And uh, so it's, it's really great to hear that. Can you tell me uh, a, a little bit about how you um, how you see the uh, like perception of the role of data and who should be interested in it in an organization. A lot of times people just kind of say, hey, that's part of technology. I need uh, a developer to worry about that. I'm going to worry about operational things. Um, let, let, me, let me try to answer that extremely complex question, which sounds very simple. <laughs> Might be full of landmines <laughs> there. Um, let me, let me just start with something. Um, if you want to start in an organization and you want to have the data talk, um, you got to address all the competencies, and that's mostly, unfortunately, the technical side. It's the engineering side. It's the functional, the domain experts. But for me, the most important start should be senior management, the board level. And how how can you do the data talk? in that boardroom in a way that can actually convey the message about data without going into all kinds of technical shit like data integration, data warehousing, data quality, master data, metadata, and all kinds of the, the XXX data and the data XXX terms. Um, in the Netherlands I have, and especially in the Netherlands but in Europe as well, the data quadrant model is a method for me to really construct a language a frame of a sense-making framework where where people like me, data fundamentalists, uh, engineers, and technologists can talk with functional people and with management, and we actually understand each other. And that's the purpose of this this data quadrant model I um, um, I constructed in the last ten years, and it's being adopted by loads, especially data-driven, data-intensive organizations at the moment. Um, that really want to grow their data function as an organizational capability instead of a, well, how do you call it, a technical trick. Um, so having having the data talk first in a in a in a language that can ex actually be understood by somebody who is governing the whole organization as well as a developer um, should be your first concern. Otherwise, you're just leaping behind before you start. And for us, that's the data quadrant model. It sits in the middle of our data architecture. Um, that might not be a complete and very good answer to your question, but it might be a start. I hope. Yeah, I think that's a great answer. And I'm glad that you mentioned the data quadrant because I actually saw that online before I first reached out to you. And that's one of the things I want to dive into today. Uh, so. For the people that are listening to this that may not be familiar with the data quadrant, I will uh, 
I'll provide a link and potentially a snapshot of it on the show notes for this episode, so you can check that at fortheloveofdata.com. But describe for us what the data quadrant is and how you arrived at this concept and this way of thinking about that conversation. Yeah, it's the data quadrant model. I often have a, a for for example, on the data modeling zone last year, I had a keynote, and the title for the keynote, which will always be also be the, the title for the upcoming TDWI talk I'm going to do, is um, data a managerial perspective, and I'm it's 20 minutes, and I often imagine I have got boardroom members in my room intelligent people, so they should be able to understand data uh, without knowing all the nerdy stuff. Uh, the important thing of the data quadrant is only two concerns. And I'm polarizing a bit because, well, the less time you have, the more you have to polarize to get the message across. Um, and the first separation of concern, or how you call it, in their terms, is what I call the push-pull point. And the push-pull point is coming from Toyota in the 50s, in the 60s, that said, well, part of the supply chain you can actually push without knowing the demand very accurately, while on the pull side you want to take into account the various um, um, the various specifics of certain demand. Um, and the theory is, and that's from the 60s, 70s logistics books in supply chain, is that everything you do on the push side of things, you want to automate. You want to standardize, you want to specify, and the moment you can you can standard and specify, you can automate. Automation in data is hugely important on the push side of things. So, so this first separation, and that's the, 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 the vertical line downstream um, in the quadrant model, is the push-pull point. And on the one side, you have the push of data, and the other side, we have the pull of data. And in terms of data, on the left side, oh, let me rephrase that. Um, there are still research companies, consultants in data that are still pushing the single version of the truth idea. And that's bullshit. <laughs> the, push, the push and the pull side of things are like, well, the push side is, is, is about the system, is, is the one single version of the facts side of things. So how I get the data, how it's created, how I collect it, or how I connect it, that's how I actually register it. Um, those are facts. And on the pool side of things, truth is kicking in. But there can be multiple truths. In data architecture terms, we always say we have to support multi-realities. Because on the same fact, I can actually produce an endless amount of truths. And that's what we should be able to do as data architects. We should architect the facts and and give the organization the capability to make their truth. It's not my truth. It's the truth of the domain expert. So there's not. It's not wrong. It's not. It's not good. It's not. I've got no opinion on truth, but I got. I, I do have an opinion on facts, and that's how I get it in the context of how I collected it or created it for example, a transaction or event or whatever, on the pool side of things, i got to organize that. And that's quadrant one, actually. 
quadrant one is we specify the data ruthlessly as how how we call it so this first separation of concern is the push pull points coming from the supply chain logistics in the 60s 70s the second concerns and that's that's basically it in the quadrant model is the way of of development style and i often hear hear, hear boardroom members then going to going to watch their phone because development is not their stuff but it is in, in data it is because um, on the one side of things we got the systematic way of development that's like uh, well in the Dutch central bank we have to send data to the European Central Bank and to the statistics office and all the data is, is curated and audited and transparent like 110 percent it's not it's very systematically built it's been tested it's been accepted it's been versioned it's been well all the things we learned in system development we we do over there in this in systematic way of development in data um, there is a, a a a separation between developer and user well on the other side of things that's the opportunistic way of development and that's very special to data I think um, because every company is doing opportunistic development in data the Excel user the Excel user is doing the collection it's doing the integration it's doing the derivation it's doing the calculations it's doing the interpretation and maybe even the action and maybe even the feedback so the opportunistic way of development uh, user and development developer are often one and that's very special I think in data the data scientist is I think the the, the epiphany the, or how do you call it the um, um, the prime example of a user and a developer in one and you gotta organize that differently as well in system in, in, in the systematic way of development we have a development environment and test we do DevOps we do agile we do user acceptance testing etc but in the opportunistic way of development I actually have a production environment and that's it <laughs> or a sandbox environment or how you call it but those guys often very very specialistic guys I, I often call them the double PhDs uh, they just they just want to have three things give me the data give me some processing power and give me nifty software and let me do my thing please um, so in, in that's what quadrant three and four are for that's a very opportunistic way of development and very defensive governance while on the systematic way of development we've got a very very defensive way of governance, sorry, defensive way of governance, and in the opportunistic way of development, we got a very offensive way of governance. People can use data. There is one cafe, cafe eat, or how do you call it? There is no such thing, especially in Europe, of course, as ungoverned data. Even a data scientist, even if you do opportunistic way of development in data, you gotta be accountable for the data you're using. If there's personal data involved, there is a law, and the law is fierce and, and justified that you actually cannot use personal data if you have if you don't have a good um, reason, legal reason, of doing that. So even in the opportunistic way of development, there is governance, but it's much much more offensive um, and much more opportunistic. So these two axes the push-pull point and the way of development actually result in four quadrants and just to give you a small thing of how this works 
in, for example, in the Dutch central banks or in other organizations, the moment I, I walk the corridors at my organization, I look into the boardroom meetings or the, the meeting rooms and I see the whiteboard and I often see um, a squatted model depicted with all kinds of arrows between it and mostly unreadable. But it's a discussion starter. Okay, so so we're busy with data. Are you ready in quarter one? Is my division director saying is asking, and we all know what he meant, what he means. Uh, no, we're not in quarter one. We're still in quarter three. Still being opportunistically now, and people are experimenting with it in quarter four. Okay, so when are we moving to quarter one and two then? And suddenly we have a conversation uh, with domain experts, with management, with developers, with nerdy data architects like me. And we all somehow understand what we actually mean. So it, it's a sense of frame. It's a, it's a common language in data um, without all the, all the difficult stuff. So that's the four quadrants, basically. Quadrant one, facts, ruthlessly modeled. We believe in modeling, uh, semantically modeled, taxonomies, ontologies, um, uh, object role modeling, logical modeling, and all the technical models are generated of course we don't develop models anymore in quadrant one we often say that the developer is the data modeler so we do not do program ETL we generate it all it's all being generated in terms of because we have a fully model and metadata driven in environment we feed um, our engine models now explain that to your management to your senior management that's hard <laughs> so let, let me just just brief you give give you a picture of how I try to to actually sell that story. Why should you pursue model and metadata driven development without actually calling it that? Because otherwise they will look to their phones again. Um, I have to drive with my car to my work like 200 kilometers every day. It's from uh, the northern part of the Netherlands to Amsterdam, and every time this journey is cumbersome. Like today, I had all kinds of uh, traffic jams, I had an accident, and I have to, to take a, a, a D route, another route. Um, it's very hard to actually get a parking spot here in Amsterdam, and it's, it's every trip has got its own quality, if you may call it. Uh, what I would like, and that's model and metadata-driven development, is that I get out of my bed, get into my car, and tell my car where I want to go, under what conditions and he brings me there and that's how we deal with data in quadrant one and two we actually model the target and said that's where we want to go we want to be we want it to be fully auditable uh, time versions etc do it for me please and based on the meta and model driven data it actually executes and every trip has got the same quality of service so I don't have ETL programs anymore <laughs> not in quadrant one two a few but I got loads of modelers now so we gotta appreciate the modeling again but that's quadrant one two in quadrant three four I don't have modelers because we do not know the model of this data it's often very data lake kind of data and the only the only person that actually knows something about the data is that guy or that girl that actually puts the data in. So they got to discover the model. And that's a whole other ballgame. And 
and and both ball games you got to accommodate as a data architect more the systematically way of dealing with facts you model it um you 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 you, you get transparency and data quality and data protection and you all get it right and you actually do the valorization of data to all kinds of internal and external stakeholders and in the other side of things the opportunistic way of development you say i don't know this data yet and i want to discover it and i want to do some um, analysis on it whether it's of value to me um, and that's mostly the data lake discussion so for me data lakes are positioned in quadrant three uh, while the real hardcore modeling which is hugely important should be in quadrant one um, and i often see the same how do you call it ambiguity of especially vendors pushing data lakes enterprise data lakes for example as the central solution to all your problems and bringing you world peace of course <laughs> not it will not and it will not happen uh, you gotta love your data and if you love and manage your data you have a quadrant one especially especially in data intensive industries and especially if you're a governmental agencies there is no escape from a fully curated quadrant one fact quadrant um, so maybe I'm talking a lot now so excuse me um, it's very hard because I often have the picture of the quadrant model um, in, 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 in the back of my uh, on, on the screen now yeah. I got to do it all by heart but <laughs> it gives you some kind of an imp impression maybe it's basically again just to repeat myself it's got two separations it's the separation of the push-pull point and the way of development and that delivers four quadrants it's it satisfies the data scientist but also the guys accountable for correct fully auditable transparent and protected data as well and um, so and that's the uh, yeah sorry go ahead oh no I'm just stating this is a great overview thank you for uh, laying it out so eloquently as you did um, and I, I, like I said I will have a picture of this on the show notes uh, and I'll link to that if you're checking this on a mobile device so please check that so you get a visual as we go through the conversation I had, there's so much there to unpack. I definitely have a few questions for yeah. you. Um, so is it safe to say that there's a constant journey and, and sort of feedback loop that goes on trying to take things from quadrant three and four up into quadrant one and two? And that Oh, man. You, you, just to interrupt you, I mean, in my belief, this is the holy grail in data architecture and data. The holy grail in data is getting is getting the, 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 the double PhD knowledge and the algorithms they discover in quadrant three, four, getting them operationalized in quadrant one, two in your, uh, um, in your processes of your company, really on scale, maintained. And if you're, a if you're able to develop that organiz organizational competency, just getting from three, four to one, two, operationalizing your data science stuff, I mean, then you're it. I we haven't done that yet. It's extremely hard to get that correctly working, um, because then innovation in data is actually bringing value on a scale to your organization. I often use a, use an example in this case. Um, say I'm a doctor, a very specialized doctor um, who's doing research on cancer and who's who's found a fantastic marker that has a very good 
forecasting ability, for example, for a certain type of cancer. But it's just in a sandbox on test data. Um, so that, that's, that's, of course, that's, that's hugely important knowledge he actually discovered. But how do I get that into the room, into the office of every doctor where I come in? How do I get that algorithm on scale for everyone to enjoy that? And that's where it often fails. It cannot be operationalized. I see data science stuff mostly done in garages, garages, in sandboxes, in pilots. I want them in full-scale environments. I want them operationalized. That is the holy grail in data at the moment. Yeah, how many people out there are running data science-oriented tasks on a laptop every day after they leave to come back in the next day to see the results? What's the value of that? I mean, of course there's value in discovering new stuff, but the real value is getting something you developed in your garage into a factory and getting it uh, productized on scale. Look, look how difficult that is. Look at Tesla, for example. It's very hard to produce on scale. And, and that's, I think, that's the real challenge we have in data at the moment. It's being too much technological driven, too much being done on a sandbox, on a laptop, as you say it correctly. Um, my division director, she's gone now, I've got an, a new replacement, always said data scientists make hugely important stuff, but there's only two outcomes. That's one, you delete it and you're going to invent new stuff. Or two, you operationalize it, and there's nothing in between. There's really nothing in between. So we got to monetize, and that's coming from a central bank guy, you got to monetize these data scientists. They discover fantastic stuff, but we got to facilitate them to operationalize that stuff on large scales. So, uh, so when you think of a data or a technology organization in, in you know, Usually that involves a CIO, potentially a chief data officer, uh, traditionally developers, uh, maintainers. What's the, what do you think their responsibility is for uh, Quadrant 3 and 4? Is it to provide the underlying platform and a base set of tools yep, and storage and just say, hey, go to town and come back and tell me when you're ready to talk about moving it? or? Is it to enforce any kind of standards there or any kind of preferred tool sets? That's a good question. Uh, thank you. Um, quadrant 3, 4, like, like I said, is the opportunistic way of development. That's what data science is sitting or data lakes or whatever you call it. It's the opportunistic way of getting development done. It's, it's a very, very much, especially Quadrant 4, is very much infrastructure-based. Um, you, you need a high-performance cluster. Maybe you need Spark or Hadoop or I don't know, or, or a fast analytical database, or it's very much technological driven, um, infrastructure driven even. Um, and, and, and being a CIO or IT, uh, your job is to facilitate them technically here. Um, the CDO has also got a very important function here, of course, because he's got two covenant functions, functions here. Um, one, that's ensuring data governance, data privacy, and data protection is also in quadrant 3.4 is being um, being taken care of. That's a hard one, by the way. But you've got to take care of What we actually want to do here, and the National Police in the Netherlands is doing that as well, 
that every data scientist that wants to do stuff with data has got to do has got to go to a register and say okay it's offensive governance so he's just got to say okay i'm going to do this profile now on this data on these data sources and i need it for three months and when he's done all the results are being put in that register as well and his access being is being denied again so you got to have you got to have some kind of accountability on what people actually did with the data even in a data science environment and i think that to get that working is a cdo responsibility the second CDO, major CDO responsibility, is what we just have, what we just talked about, and that's getting it operationalized into the business processes of your organization. For example, if you really want to be truly data driven, you gotta have this this, this governance process from three four to one two, operationalize your data science stuff, and you can't buy that. There's no way. And there's no technology vendor, and there's no system integrator where you can say, okay, um, I want to have a quantum three four to one two operationalization of data. This is something you got to do yourself, and it takes a lot of effort, blood, sweat, and tears to get this done, and you got to organize it. A CDO, chief data office, the chief data office, that would be a prime example of where he should facilitate. And so, in quantum three four, to summarize it, I would say, especially. Um, on the, um, the, the data protection side of things, he's got to be in control, at least minimal in control. And the second part is the operationalization of the Quadrant 3.4, the data science stuff, to your business processes. Um, those are two important functions, I think, of the chief data officer. Wow. Still so many questions here. Um, so, <laughs> so. If Again, trying to keep this visual in the minds of everybody that's listening. So if you think of this quadrant, there's four different boxes, and you can also, like you said, think of um, two different sides for the, the push-pull point and then um, two different sides for the development style. So there's about one, two, three, four, five, six, There's about eight different ways that you can group uh, boxes yep. on here. And I feel like, well, actually 12 if you look at each of the individual boxes as an entity of themselves. And so I feel like a person could spend their entire career on any one of those 12 boxes, let alone putting all 12 of them together in different permutations. And so yeah. give me some recommendations on how someone builds an organization uh, of people that can start managing all 12 of these simultaneously. That's a Good question as well. And often at the end of the um, uh, of, of the talk I do about this, the functional talk, I often end with a question, um, and that's saying, "Okay, guys, you heard my story. Uh, say you can start all over again, and you have one million to invest, or even one hundred euros, or whatever. Um, where would you start?" And um, if I ask this to a large audience, I often get fifty-fifty. The one half is saying I start with one two, and the other half is saying I start with three four, and both are correct, by the way. I mean, there's no there's no value. I'm not judging anyone on on where you should start. It's depending on your context. Um, but the strange thing is, the moment I I pose this question to a boardroom, for example, where five people are sitting, and I'm posing the same question, you know what they answer? They answer quadrant one. And I find that fascinating and I always give that feedback as well because, okay, guys, you say quadrant one, 
But if I'm looking at your investment decisions, you're investing in all kinds of nifty tools like uh, uh, data science stuff and forecasting and data mining and whatever. You do not invest in data. You invest in the shiny tools. And just to paraphrase it a bit with an analogy, uh, to, to, to give you an analogy, that's like uh, having a hyper-modern modern toilet with all kinds of uh, pumps and and, 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 and and the playstations and then there's 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 nice music and there is uh, mobile internet and there you got everything there on this toilet but there is no connection to the sewer do you have any any idea what kind of shit that gives <laughs> so <laughs> uh, um, it in, in, in especially, it, it, there is no value on where to start. For example, if you are a startup, I would say just go three, four guys. Prove the value of data by going three, four. Um, that's, that fits the context of your organization. But my God, if you're a governmental agency like the police or the tax authority or a central bank or a bank or an insurance or whatever, and you do not have a quadrant one, that, that's almost criminal. Um, that's that really is something you should scratch your head about. I mean, what are you doing with your data? You're curating your, the parking lot and your art collection probably better than the data then. Like Frank Buitendijk from Gardner is, uh, is also saying, and I love that quote, in many organizations, um, the, uh, the parking lot is better maintained than the data. <laughs> um, gotta have a quadrant one if you're a data intensive like governance or government public organization or an organization like a bank an insurance pension with high compliancy um, uh, demands etc there is no way out you gotta invest in quadrant one and back to your question what is the investment the investment is in skills and in people you gotta have modelers again we gotta reintroduce on the universities and the curricula universities the modeling skills they got to return somehow we have lost that skill um, that started with brilliant men especially men unfortunately in the 70s with card with date we gotta go back to this modeling or help in in, in object role modeling we gotta go back to these fundamentals the research fundamentals, scientific fundamentals in data, because they're already invented. We just are not using it because we're so technological, technological driven. And in quadrant one, you got to invest in those skills. In quadrant three, four, you got to invest in data engineers, people that actually know how to uh, maintain a high-performance cluster, or a Hadoop environment, or a Spark cluster, or and you got to have domain experts and uh, the double PhDs with some R and Python and versioning skills. Um, so that's that's completely all the different different kinds of profile of people than you need in quadrant one. And in quadrant two, quadrant two, you need the application developers and the BI people, the, the classic business intelligence people that want to do dashboards, that do all kinds of reports. But also, you want to have in quadrant two your application developers and. I haven't mentioned that, but we do not call ourselves full-scale data architectures, and it does, that, that actually does mean something, because what we do in a central bank at the moment, like the last four to five years, 
is we made one logically data environment. And there's no separation anymore, not a hard separation anymore, between um, operations, transactions, and information, like the classic data warehouse. Mm -hmm. We have a data platform. So we, the moment we create a transaction or event, it's being persisted only once. And it's not being, how do you call it, uh, uh, deployed anymore to a data warehouse or something. No, it's being used in analytics and BI immediately uh, by means, for example, by data virtualization. Uh, but, but there's one data holistic environment, log logically, that we are, what, what we are uh, engineering here. There's no separation anymore between um, operational data and informational data. No way. That's just not how things should work. And if you do that, by the way, and I mean, in the last 20 years ago and 30 years ago, it was pretty logical that you want to separate those two because we had technological issues. But we do not have these technological issues anymore. And if you're still separating these, these operational and these informational environments, you also have a master data problem. But if you have one environment, there is no master data environment, master data problem anymore. But you got to model. You got to model the data. You got to have it semantically correct. In technical terms, in data architecture technical terms, we often say um, you got to have your vertical data architecture in place. And vertical data architecture is going from language to meaning to taxonomies, ontologies, logical models, and technical models. That's the vertical architecture. The horizontal architecture is most organizations only have a horizontal or data architecture, and that's how the data actually moves from A to B to C to D. And you got to have both. And unfortunately, nine, of ten, nine out of ten organizations only have the horizontal data architecture. And that's just a programming wahala. <laughs> that's a code uh, uh, fest, or how do you call it? I want to have a model fest as well. <laughs> yeah, that's a really interesting concept. I do want to dive in here uh, from a tiny bit of a technical standpoint. So when you were describing the, the push-pull points in the supply and demand fact context piece, uh, it made me think a lot about data vault modeling. And I know that you've got some experience yep. in that. So how much did that drive the conceptual development of, of, of the push-pull point? Good point. Yeah. If you In my first slides of the quadrant model, I only had two quadrants. That's the push-pull. Um, and that was being born like I brought DataFold in the Netherlands in 2006 to the tax authority. And I got Dan Lindstedt in, um, in the Netherlands and uh, teaching us the stuff. Um, and it really opened our eyes. It opened our eyes as to have one system of facts and doing business rules downstream. Um, before that, we were ambiguous about that. We did a lot of business rules upstream, and the costs were huge in terms of uh, auditability and traceability and whatever. And Datafold forced us as um, people, be aware, there is a system of facts. And all the business rules downstream mean you can actually have multi-realities, multiple versions of the truth. So you see that the actual ghost, or how do you call it, the... Um, I often say I'm standing on, on the shoulders of giants. I mean, Lindstedt is, is absolutely a giant um, 
that provoked our thinking in that first separation of the push-pull point, the push versus the pull. It's being born out of this data fault style of modeling families. In the Netherlands, we call it the anchor style modeling uh, families because okay. there's data fault, but there's also anchor modeling and there are all kinds of different families of modeling that do the same stuff. They separate the relations from the keys from the attributes and making parallel loading a possibility, making it fully transparent and, and traceable. Um, and it sits at the heart of our current architectures. And I think nine out of 10 organizations in the Netherlands are doing data fault. Wow, that's amazing. It's, it's, it's huge, it's absolutely huge here. Um, the, the Germans are now picking up as well, very fast. Uh, the Scandinavians always had an, uh, a, a reputation of doing data fault and anchor style kind of uh, modeling. Um, and I'm seeing it spread, especially in Europe, I think. And Australia, for example, is going okay. I think the US is, is, is going okay as well. But it's always a bit more difficult because the US was always more inclined for, how do you call it, technical pragmatism. Um, just buy a tool and let's solve it. Um, we we really believe in data modeling, data architecture, um, but we got to remember that data fault is a technical modeling style. Logical modeling style is something completely different, like semantically or ontologies are, are something completely different. They 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 do different concerns, um, but we still using are still using data fault in quadrant one as the persistent. Uh, model where we data actually persist. It's always being in a data fault style model. So that's important. Absolutely. Good question. Yeah. I, and it's, it's really amazing to hear you say that nine out of 10 organizations or somewhere in that neighborhood are, are using data vault there because here there is still a knowledge gap uh, in a lot of industries and a lot of uh, firms uh, who just don't even know what that style of architecture is. And so uh, a lot of times you have to have a foundational conversation about that before you can talk about anything else. And exactly, that, that's a good point. You've got to have the conversation, not about the technical style, because then you get in religious discussions, <laughs> but you have, you've got to have the discussion on, on concerns. What's your concern? Well, I want to, I want to be fully auditable. Oh, that's interesting. I want to have a, uh, indeed, I want to have a, 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 a fact-based trans, uh, uh, trans um, how do you call it, database versus multi-realities. And if you're actually going to, dis to, to describe these concerns and then find the, uh, the appropriate modeling solution, you get to the anchor-style families. There's no escape. I mean, Kimball just doesn't cut it anymore. Really, it doesn't. Um, it's just not situated in, in quadrant one. We still have dimensional models, but they're situated in quadrant two because they reflect a demand, a truth. But the facts are always very good models, very wisely modeled, very uh, consistently modeled in quadrant one using on a technical layer the data vault. Very interesting. So let me ask you a little bit about your organization. You, you mentioned that there are people that talk in the data quadrant language and you see that on whiteboards when you go to meetings. So for an organization that has embraced this model, has got a organization in place uh, and, and people that are thinking this way and implementing uh, decisions this way, what's the next 
thing that they have to think about? Is there a transformation yeah. from this point that they need to go to next, or is it just about moving faster between the the cycles between the quadrants? Oh, oh, it it, it it's a guerrilla. Um, uh, any any architect that is listening to this is uh, um, will agree with me that getting something done long term um, and getting an actual change in how you deal with data is. Uh, is such a hard fight. Um, look, we we have achieved something, especially in quadrant one two, um, and now we're moving to quadrant three four, and and our biggest headache, like we started this discussion, um, where we have to grow, is getting three four in working order with these two primary governance concerns, getting it governed, the data, especially the data protection stuff in an analytical free environment that's a hard job and getting it operationalized in one two again and these we are we are at the beginnings of how we should do that um, and we're still discovering and making errors like hell uh, how should we do that because how do you call it the acceleration in technology at the moment is just astounding um, so the moment you you have this foundational discussion how you should do it technology is also progressing very hard so how do you actually ride on the waves of this technology acceleration but also getting something structural like an organizational capacity in place that can operationalize data science into quadrant one two on scale in your business processes and actually get get the value to the customer or the patient or the student or whatever your uh, your organization is servicing. Um, that's our hardest challenge. I mean, we got one too. And that's even hard, but we got one too. But 3-4 is our major challenge, and the even bigger challenge is getting it from 3-4 to 1-2. But if we got that, if we got that bow roll rolling, um, we, I think we have something here. <laughs> but it, it, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a hard fight for everybody to actually be on board but you, because you also got to remember and every architect is also probably relating to that um, you gotta you gotta deliver you gotta deliver short term as well you cannot always talk in the cloud and say well eventually we will we will get there no but I need it tomorrow because I got a problem tomorrow so mm -hmm. you gotta have these two modis these two tempi of delivering fast while also um, doing something structural and not having the constant discussion on, well, um, um, how do we improve gradually in the long term? Um, and that, and the second part of any architects, what which makes these kinds of development very hard, is legacy. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's huge amounts of data in legacy databases, but this data is still of value to a lot of users, internal and external, and you got to integrate that somehow. Um, so legacy, technological acceleration, um, those are all complicated factors, um, especially if your organization is, is large. You've got a lot of people uh, raising their finger and saying, hey, I saw a nice tool, let's buy it. And then you go, oh my God, take it easy, guys. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so, 
<laughs> so can you share with us some of the uh, the best tools that you see for enabling this uh, these different quadrants? Is there one tool that uh, satisfies a couple of them fairly well, or do you have uh, you know internally to to the yep. Dutch Central Bank? What what do things look like? Good, good question. Um, look, in, in quadrant one, two, technology-wise, you got to look for automation software. And automation software like, um, I'm, I'm just calling them two names, because I'm a central bank and a public organization. Um, You've got Westcape, of course, those kinds of tools, mm -hmm. uh, which is more internationally known. Um, we actually did at the Dutch Central Bank a co-creation with a startup. Okay. Uh, iReFact, is it called? Uh, which does the automation. We, we model the data logically, and this engine is actually creating the technical models, the, the data faults, etc. Um, the second part of technology, the technology in quantum 2 you need, is data virtualization. You've got to have data virtualization technology in place. It's important to actually persist data only once physically. Um, it, it, it relieves a lot of your risks, um, but it also gives you agility towards your quadrant two and your end users and quadrant four. So in quadrant one, two, data-wise, um, I'm looking, of course, mainly still at relational analytical databases. I'm looking at automation software and data virtualization software. And in quadrant two, um, I very much believe in, 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 how do you call it in, in English, in APIing the data. Yes. Um, I'm slowly um, losing faith in making data sets and data marts for everybody, but I much more believe in publicizing APIs that actually people can address with any tool they use, whether it's R, whether it's Python, whether it's Excel, Power BI, or whatever BI tool. It should be able to talk to APIs. So if I, if I, if I make my data um, uh, if I if I enclose it with API management as a software category, mm -hmm. especially in the cloud, it looks very promising. Um, I know, for example, with API management, who actually touched the data, what was the performance of the data. Uh, I can cache the data, I can govern the data, I can make another endpoint very easily and very fast. So I very much believe in, in APIing the data in quadrant two. And well, what kind of BI tool you use? I don't care right. if I offer APIs. I really don't care. Um, I, I mean, efficiency-wise, you don't want to invest in too many, too much uh, uh, BI tools, but that's an efficiency discussion then and not a religion discussion anymore. Um, so in quadrant three, four, um, in quadrant three, we're looking at fast infrastructures, um, high-performance clusters. Um, I do not believe that Hadoop's kind of stuff is fitting for most organizations, because we just don't have the data footprint for that kind of technology. I very much believe in, for example, fast analytical databases like uh, Vertica or uh, Monet DB, which are very fast analytical databases. You can load fast and you can create extremely fast. Um, in quadrant four, I very much believe in open source, um, R, Python, Git. Um, maybe the data science platforms like DataEQ, which are coming up, or DataRobot from Trifecta, uh, which gives a kind of a platform where data science people can collaborate, code in R, 
but also have an abstraction layer where they can point and click as well. Um, they can version it very, very easily. You don't have to be a Git specialist anymore because that's very hard. Um, and you can actually give the science in data science an appropriate place <laughs> that, that it actually means something. It's got to be reproducible. It's got to be well documented. It's got to be etc. 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 And these data science platforms in, in quadrant four, I think, are very in, very very exciting to watch. For example, Data EQ or Data Robot. SAS is also, of course, transforming very fast at the moment, which I also well keenly interested in and what they're doing because they come from a a legacy. They gotta transform. They gotta embrace open source. I'm also looking at Microsoft, the Azure platform. It's going very fast. Um, but bottom line, I believe in open source, the H2O, the TensorFlows, the R, the Pythons, um, important for. Great. So that's basically some kind of technology dimension and aspect on these four quadrants. But that, that's the nice thing about these quadrants. Every quadrant has got its own technology stuff. There's no one size fits all here. Impossible. Thank you so much for that. That's really helpful to give people a, an idea of some of the tools they can look at and measure what they have currently against some of the things they may want to think about. Uh, all right, so we're about at the point that we need to wrap up. I've got probably two more hours of questions. Uh, first, I want to say thank you so much for sharing this with me. Uh, it's been uh, extremely interesting, and I would love to have some more conversations on this, perhaps over Twitter. But uh, where, where's the best place for people to uh, find you if they want to learn more about Data Quadrant or uh, the things that you're up to? Well, the best thing is uh, Google is your friend. Uh, the moment you put in my name, um, um, you, you, you probably get to my blog environment, uh, my articles. If you go to my LinkedIn profile, you'll see all the presentations I did, all the keynotes, uh, all the articles I've written. Um, and that kind of stuff and of course uh, Twitter is also your friend uh, connect with me write me a message and I absolutely love to connect with kindred spirits here <laughs> and get their questions or even there they're the critics because I'm interested in, in improving as well alright well thank you so much for taking the time uh, to share this with us and uh, I look forward to continuing those conversations with you in the future thank you very much it's been a bless it's been very fun to talk about your own expertise we hope you're enjoying the for the love of data podcast if you are please support us by leaving a review wherever you listen to podcasts such as itunes google play or stitcher to stay plugged in to all things data subscribe to our mailing list at for the love of data.com you can also find show notes for all of our episodes on the website as well We'd love to hear your thoughts on today's topic or ideas for future episodes. To get in touch, tweet us. We're at Love of Data or at Robert Fur on Twitter. Thanks again for joining us, and until next time, keep spreading the love of data to the world around you.